Hello and welcome to Access Chat. We're delighted to welcome back Judge Ginger Lerner Wren, uh, repeated guest on Access Chat. It's been a couple of years. So, as a reminder, Judge Ginger was the founder of the first mental health court in the United States, a real pioneer in, in, in restorative justice. So, we're delighted to have you back. Obviously, You've been operating in in unprecedented times, so I think it's a great time to catch up and find out what you've been doing and and what's changed in in the world of I'm I'm just so happy to be here. (laughs) And I feel like, you know, for the last year and a half, uh, you know, not only have we become so isolated, you know, all of us uh, from our regular routines and the people that we see and everything that we do, uh, that we've been so used to, but for you all, um, you know, you're, you know, just to be here, uh, to be able to come back and talk about the experience, not only I think is it going to be extremely therapeutic for me, but I think it's going to be, you know, really enlightening uh, for your audience on so many different levels because so much has changed. The genie is out of the bottle and technology in the courts and it's exciting. So, and, and 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 yes. So so tell us. You're now. We, we were just discussing before we came on air that you're you're holding sort of hybrid hearings, and and that must have huge implications for how you how you deliver justice, how you hear do these hearings, but also really positive impacts, but also some challenges for accessibility too. It does, you know, and I want to just back up a little bit and maybe put it in perspective because you do have a global audience and uh, I want to make sure I'm talking in global terms. So, um, and and, and as you might know, um, I I, I know you were following me at the time, but about mm, six months ago, seven months ago, whenever it was during, I don't know, I can't remember the exact date, but I was moderating uh, a global panel for the um, for the two, for the 2021 Hill Foundation Innovative Justice Awards uh, that was held uh, this this past year, and I had the honor of moderating a global panel, and and uh, on the panel was the uh, Justice Minister from the United Arab Emirates and. Uh, representative of the the head, actually, of the Singapore Law Academy, as well as the technological director out of Sierra Leone. And uh, we had a really exciting panel about the intersectionality of technology, the law, all under the uh, umbrella uh, uh, theme, if you will, of how do we really promote access to justice, correct? And I thought that what was so really ironic in a sense is here I am moderating this panel and and I'm coming of course, you know, from court innovation and and problem solving courts and how do you promote human rights uh, in terms of, and disability rights through the court process, uh, et cetera. But here we are, these panelists have been working in justice systems that are so highly technological, um, you know, for so long, it's really uh, part of their paradigm. 
And uh, for, I'm just going to raise my volume up a little bit. And, um, you know, here in the United States, not so much. So the pandemic uh, really for the United States has been quite a catalyst in terms of the use of technology, how it gets implemented, and now where do we go from here, uh, which are all somewhat, you know, unanswered questions. And, you know, from my vantage, from my perch, um, but really uh, interesting and exciting times because I'm not sure we were all prepared for the pandemic and the lockdown. So uh, uh, great to have you back. It's it's uh, it's uh, no, it's it's great to, to be able to have this conversation again because we we somehow we keep ourselves engaged on Twitter over time. We know you are always there. That's that's uh, that's. Uh, Thank I'll, you. I'll, I'll Thank you, Antonio. Here. I really appreciate that. So uh, uh, looking at you no, know, uh, considering uh, what you have just said. Do you feel that uh, all the situation that we have been over the last over the last couple of months um, uh, was somehow unblocked some of the changes uh, that somehow that people didn't want to do before COVID? Get my point? No, th there were some changes that were needed. People were delaying them or they Ab didn't want to. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. You know, I think that particularly um, for individuals, you know, just just let's just take individuals that that accessibility and getting to, a, you know, driving uh, to a courthouse and and, you know, navigating, um, you know, a, a, a very large, challenging courthouse like the one we have, for example, in Broward County and you know, and the financial aspects of paying for parking and all the things that we don't necessarily think about um, are very, very big issues for so many people that we see in the justice system, whether, you know, it's on the small, on the civil side or on the juvenile side or the criminal justice side. You know, these, these are real, could be very real hardships uh, for people just to just to show up to court. So yes, I think that, um, I'm not sure, I, I think there was a latent, <laughs> you know, uh, need uh, to really get us jump-started in technology. And we are, I have to say, uh, we are really uh, on the move. It's exciting in a way. It, it's, it's too bad that it took you know, a pandemic to get us here. But um, I know you were already showing leadership before in your courtroom. So it's, it is very interesting. And I, um, I hope that we continue to learn from these lessons, and that we don't go backwards. But I also want to take you um, I don't know how forward I'm taking you, but one thing I think is, which I always love about the work you're doing is that as I was reading about what's, what might happen with artificial intelligence and robo judges, and could we make robo judges, um, you know, less biased than maybe, maybe human judges and things like that. I, I'm just curious with all that we've learned about 
um, digital inclusion. And, you know, you said you're really sort of back to like a blended uh, right now in the court, not in the court, things like that. But do do any of these lessons tie into what we're going to do with our justice systems in the future with artificial intelligence? I know I'm going sort of out there, but I know that you're really on top of things. Well, you know, you, you're not going out there. Um, I remember years ago, and maybe Neil, you know, you have a, a better memory of this, but there was actual testing from IBM of, you know, their robotics and um, they were using their robotics, you know, in term and through artificial intelligence in terms of in the justice system. And they were getting some really good outcomes. I think it was Watkins, if, if I'm not mistaken, was the name of that IBM. Um, was it Wat- Wat- something to that effect. Somebody could look oh, yeah, it up yeah. while I'm talking. Yeah. And yeah, you know, it's pretty threatening I mean, when you really think about it. You know, because let's let, you know, let's be honest. I mean, you know, there are, uh, we're human. We all bring our lived experience with us. We bring our belief systems with us. We bring our cultural implications with us. We're only human. And, um, you know, I, 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 I think that there's going to be a place. Um, I don't, I hope, you know, it doesn't totally put us out, but I, I know that, um, for example, just to give you a kind of, I know I'm going off the track, but I think it's a cute example. And that is that I'm also, I think you all know, you know, I'm also an adjunct professor um, in the College of Psychology, as well as criminal justice and graduate studies, teaching teaching what I do, essentially. And uh, yeah, problem solving, innovation, how to lead cultural change for justice, et cetera. And um, there, there was a, a, a real um, a plan in the College of Psychology to develop a, um, a simulation, a, a simulated lab for the mental health court. And that, uh, and all I kept saying is, well, if I'm going to be an avatar judge, you know, make me blonde, you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that was really exciting. And, you know, you think about, wow, you know, what could we learn from that? Um, how could we improve justice? And then does the aspect of competition, right? I uh, say, so, you know, <laughs> against uh, robots, uh, you know, in the future. I, I, I could just see, you know, this great film and, uh, you know, coming to pass. So yes, I mean, I think that um, artificial intelligence, you know, is, is, you know, going off like a, like a moonshot, you know, across so many chasms. So I don't doubt it for one second. But at the same time, I really do believe that you know, maybe with the right data sets, we can teach robo judges not to be biased. And, you know, uh, I'm hope- hoping we could, but I. Well, justice is supposed to be blind, right? <laughs> Good point. But I always think that we need to have judges that see over the robo judges and look at their cases. Of course. And we have quality assurance and stuff going on. I think we will always need the judge wrens of the world. I, I totally like that. Yeah. But to, to your point, uh, we have to realize that in order to, to feed uh, uh, AI, 
we, we need data. Right. And the data that we might be using today was generated over the last 20 years. Right. And that's very difficult because it's very difficult to our you need to our, you need to make sure that you are not going to bring the bias from those decisions. Yes. Well so said. And replicate them in the future. So it's right. it's a very difficult challenge. Yeah, it's very complicated. I like to think if you're going to humanize law, you need humans. Right. <laughs> Good point. I know that Neil wanted to comment on this too. One of the cases that concerned me um, that, that I, I'd read about was, was the use of AI to predict recidivism rates. Mm. Uh, and, and essentially what was happening was that um, they were using historical data and because of the historical biases amongst the, the communities of color and the, the, the people of different ethnicities and different socioeconomic classes, were more likely to be picked up by the police for minor offenses and infractions. And therefore the prediction that they were going to reoffend in the system was likely to trigger and they were much less likely to get released. So, so as we design these systems, and I think there is, there is a need to speed up justice sometimes because people are left waiting for human decisions. So, so, so there may be utility in doing some of this stuff, We've still got to design our intent better rather than just relying on the data that we've had from from the the human based systems of history where we know that that you know the that the societies have these biases that that the socioeconomic classes that were most excluded are also the most likely to get picked up by the criminal justice system. You know, if you're wealthy, you can afford a good lawyer. You're uh, going to look a certain way. You're not going to be perceived as a threat. You're much less likely to get questioned by the police in the first place. You're in a neighborhood where the police aren't looking. All of these things, you know, impact on your statistical likelihood to be picked up. None of them actually impact on whether or not you're more or less likely to be inclined to do something that infringes the law. No, that's it's such a complicated it's such a complicated question, I think fundamentally because you know I, I guess when you were saying that, Neil, all that came to my mind was I was okay, you know, if we want to get to outcomes, right, that are more just, that are more equitable, that, you know, really demonstrate the fairness of what our goals of our system are, understanding that we always have to balance public safety, you know, then you want to go to the data sets as to what works, correct? Not where it's failed, not a fail first kind of data set, but with all of the deficits that drive and contribute to that but what works, and then of course we know we that we have to that that what we need, beyond you know um, uh, those aspirational types of of, of um, facts and data, is we need to make sure we can scale up. And in order to scale up, 
uh, in terms of resources and making sure that systems that we could prevent trauma, that we could, you know, really reduce disparities, that we could attack systemic racism and structural racism and all of that and be, become a more equitable, empathic, you know, um, society as a whole, then we need to do things holistically. And, you know, we just can't compartmentalize because we could, we could find really, we could mine really great data on what works. And you know that I think, I hope you recognize, because I try very hard that when, for example, on social media, I'm always coming from that point of reference. Yes. Meaning I really don't like to come, you know, that's where I feel my own inspiration. Like I have to inspire myself. <laughs> and, and we're all, all of a similar mindset in, in that respect, because we, we're, we're all um, on social media trying to inspire people with the positive intent and possibilities of, of technology and society to, to be better and to serve people better. So, so which is why we've remained connected over, over the years and why we're delighted to have you back. So, so it, 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 it was never meant as a criticism. It was more meant as a... Oh, no, not at all. I didn't uh, take it as such. I just, I was thinking, okay, oh, well, indeed. how do you match, how do you match the artificial intelligence with the scalability? And I think that some of that is, you know, you can't always rely on that historical data and you're going, you have to design new models based upon where you want to be, experiment with them, measure that, yeah, see whether yeah. or not the outcomes are correct, and then build upon that so that we can scale up this, as you say, empathetic system of justice that really delivers what we all believe in. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Judge Wren, I know that in the in the uh, all over the world, but just probably because I'm in the states, I'm hearing social justice, social justice. It's said so much all over the world, and it sometimes uh, means different things to different people. Um, and I mean that respectfully as well, but, um, and my team is starting to be brought in more into social justice conversations, which we're so glad of, but I was just wondering if you could, if we could just sort of shift to that conversation, because I personally think you should be leading a lot of these social justice conversations because of the work you do and the leadership and innovation that you are showing around the world. Well, it is a compliment, but it's also true. So thank you. Uh, yeah, I, you know, uh, when I started writing uh, many years ago, um, and I guess that that uh, events did, did focus around when I was up for that International Social Justice Award out of The Hague so many years ago. So... Uh, the, the, uh, I love that term of art and uh, the way, and I guess uh, the way I visualize and activate social justice is in a very, very broad construct. And that is that, you know, the idea of going back to very basic principles of human rights um of justice and um you know that the aspect of 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 fairness the aspect of human dignity 
the aspect of equality, that we are all equal under the law, that uh, we all have, you know, the same, we all ought to theoretically have the same opportunity for housing, um, that we ought to have the same opportunity to get health care, that, and I mean quality health care, that we all should be able to have food to eat and be safe from violence. And, you know, so, um, you know, so when you look at the Convention for Persons with Disabilities, for example, just using, using that as just a really, you know, basic foundation um, of human rights on a global level, you can see the intersectionality that even if you're not a lawyer, even if you're not a judge, you have a role to play in the promotion of social justice. And what I tell people in my courtroom is that, you know, and I say this to people that are incarcerated because I don't want, I want them to know, you know, we talk about, you know, reentry, we talk about the research base, we talk about therapeutic approaches to, you know, to, to well-being. We want to create new pathways for opportunity. All of this falls to me. It's social justice talk. If we, you know, and I, and I remember years ago, well, I was giving a, a, a lecture at a, at a community college not too far away. And I, I do it every year and it's there. Uh, I think it was uh, for Broward Community College, their psychology club. And, I, and it was right at the time when the film Selma came out um, to commemorate, of course, you know, the, the incredible Bloody Sunday attack uh, across the Eugene Pettus Bridge. And I said to every student, go see Selma. I go, go see Selma because just watching that film is an act of social justice. And it's the little things. It's the little things. It's the big things. But whether you're a physician or a journalist or an economist or, you know, any work you do, an educator, of course, a lawyer, of course, um, we, all, we all have a social worker, of course, you know, we all play a very significant role in the promotion of social justice. Oh, you're muted, Deb. How long does it take me to get off mute? Yeah, no, well, well, beautifully said too, beautifully said. I know that Antonio also had a comment or a question. So let me turn it over. So, uh, so we know that um, our community is very interested on on the, on 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 this topic. So uh, I, I would like you to, if if you if you can, to tell us, um, you know, how were you, you know, considering all the constraints, you know, that we live in, how you were able to somehow navigate in those constraints to make sure that you were able to, you know, make sure that uh, that your decisions. Uh, your court was inclusive as possible to you know to somehow unbalance those injustices. You know because it, it's it you know it was an, it's a new situation for everyone. 
You might have people on the other side of the phone who are in low bandwidth. Others might not even have a phone. Can you tell us a little bit, you know, uh, uh, some of those uh, backstage stories that could somehow help us to understand what we, what you have been passing through? It is, it is challenging. It is challenging because just yesterday I had an older, older individual, disabled and not familiar with social, not familiar with Zoom, doesn't have a smartphone or didn't know how to use it. Even though when I saw this person, I'm not gonna say anything more um, about that person to identify that person, but we had a long conversation that this is how we're gonna do the next hearing and you know, tried to give instructions from, from the courtroom. And then, you know, sure enough, didn't show up. That person didn't show up uh, on the Zoom hearing. And you start to go, uh-oh, did that person get out of jail okay? Is that person okay? You know, I don't want to have to issue a, a warrant for that. Per you know, ultimately, where is this person? So thankfully, luckily, for the people that I see, not in both of my courts, but in the mental health court, I take phone numbers. Uh, I have phone numbers, addresses, things like that. I keep like a, like a, like you go into a doctor and you fill out a questionnaire. Um, I keep a notebook so I can contact family members. Um, and luckily the lawyer, her lawyer was, um, excuse me, the, the lawyer was able to call and I, um, and or, or my, we were able to call and just said, hey, I understand you're not able to get on Zoom, but if I take my telephone and put it up to the monitor and put it on speaker, we could, you know, kind of make it work that way. So you improvise through a call in and a call in on a Zoom. Um, so that was able to work. And I invite people. And what about mothers? For example, who um, you know um, have childcare issues and they're not able, and it, and when we have hybrid hearings, if they're if they are subpoenaed, let's say to be in court, they could have asked to be on Zoom, but they didn't know to do that. Um, and so, it and people that don't have the bandwidth and people that don't, you know, it's it's really problematic. And so that's where we've got to make sure that, you know, there's some mechanism through some aspect of county government or the court system to, you know, really, I think, get some data on this issue, number one, and understand where the gaps may be and then work to fill those gaps. I just don't know that we of what we don't know. To, to complete my question, you know, that requires an extra effort from everyone, you know, particularly from you, from your team, from, from the lawyers. Do you see that the value and that effort being recognized at, uh, locally, at government? Are people recognized? Because that's a huge effort. Is a you the number of hours that are required 
to work and to have the world, then are completely different. You know, I wish all of my colleagues could hear you right now. You know, that's what I wish. I wish every judge and every lawyer could hear what you just said because you care about the process and you care about the effort that goes in to try to make these processes work. And no, uh, nobody's talking about that. Nobody is, is, is acknowledging, wow, this is a really, a really you know, tough climb that you, that you all are doing under very difficult conditions. And I really don't think that that gets discussed. Um, maybe it does in some circuits in some places, but maybe more than others. I haven't really heard that. I think that this is more of, look, you know, you are responsible for due process, uh, for the promotion of due process under the law. And we recognize that under the pandemic, there's hardship, you know, for, you know, really to get equal, equal access, um, you know, now to uh, technology, et cetera. Um, but there's really no real conversation, not only about the challenges, but again, who is getting left behind? And, and, and those efforts are, you know, are extremely important. And I think that people don't necessarily recognize the, the large amount of effort it takes to be intentionally accessible and inclusive and the 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 impact that has on the individuals that are trying to do it and the resources that that really are required to do it well and at scale so, so exactly yeah. exactly Neil I was almost thinking well maybe I need to go to that person's house I mean maybe I need to go to that person's house you know, take a court report. I don't. You know, I have. I mean, I remember. I once years ago, not you know, no pandemic, but there was a juvenile in a locked residential facility. I needed an emergency hearing. I said to my court staff, "We're going down there. We're holding an emergency hearing down at that locked residential, um, it, you know." Uh, facility, that program where this disabled child is, it was that much of an urgent matter. Of course, that program got shut down, thankfully. Um, but, you know, how do you bring justice to where the people are? How do you serve them where they are if they can't get to you, even, you know, through a technological process? And I think, yeah, we have to get into the community and really do a mass survey. So, so I think this is interesting, and there have been some experiments in the UK that I'm, I'm aware of where um, hearings are being held in places like shopping centres. Uh, and, and, and so um, they're making them more accessible in a, you know, but well, both mainly, like, firstly, because mammon wants everybody's money, shopping centres are generally more access that's really interesting it's a win it's a it's a win-win yeah um and we do have a model a problem solving court model that are community courts and there's you know they're not um you know they're not uh 
really necessarily geared, they could be, I suppose, geared to meet this issue um, and really activated to do that. Um, but they're, you know, we're, we, they're just not that prevalent to be able, I think, to do that on a grand scale. But I love that idea that you could designate a community um, center to hold forth from and let the public know, come there. Yeah, uh, and also it's less intimidating, I think, as a as an environment. Courts, and I know you you're you're making great efforts to make it less so, um, but but court buildings generally have been designed to be intimidating because they want to reinforce the power of the law and the seriousness of, of it is of it is it's done you know i mean if you you can see my courtroom the the colors are warm the elements you know it almost looks like you're in a living you know i met the architect i actually met the architect of our courthouse in san francisco at my at one of my book signings and it was, yeah, it was a very interesting meet. And uh, yeah, it's very pretty. But yes, they are designed to really um, elevate uh, that the, the authority and the dignity and the, uh, the authority of, the, of the, the power of the court. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I think that these things are interesting. So the physical design and the aesthetic design has an impact on the uh on the mental state of the people that are involved in the process and in the building. And, and that's not something that a lot of people think about. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, um, I'm also really interested in the, in the idea of um, Judge Wren on tour with a camper van bringing restorative justice. Or I think that was. I, I have, I have a vision. Uh, we I have, have well, a vision. We, we have a TV series. <laughs> I, I, I see it coming. Yeah, Justice yeah. on wheels. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I, I think that, that 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 whole sort of piece of sort of, um, you know, because a lot of these things are, are fairly minor and people fall into the trap of, of getting into scrapes and, and, and these things escalate with the recidivism and everything else. So, that the kind of justice that you're trying to bring where you're you're offering alternatives to 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 locking people up and 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 new pathways requires people to come to you or has you know to bring that into the communities you know would serve more people the other area that i'm i'm interested in and you touched upon was trauma and 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 i think that um communities of people that have experienced trauma uh, are also much more likely to be um, falling foul of the, the criminal justice system because the, they start to behave in ways, when they're traumatized, they start to behave in ways at their first point of contact with, with law enforcement that make the law enforcement more suspicious of them. So how can we remove some of that or, or some of the trauma, but also deal with people that we know have been traumatized and are in traumatized communities? I think it's the essence of social justice, uh, that how we uh, become more interdisciplinary um, as, as judges and as lawyers, and also in law enforcement, I mean, but just talking about the law as a profession, and I, I had this beautiful 
conversation yesterday with students um, over at our uh, my local law school at Nova, where I graduated from uh, yesterday, and to remind law students that this is a helping profession. The law is a helping profession, just like you know any healthcare profession, social work. We are a part of a helping profession, so we have to therefore understand that, uh, for example, what I teach and what I do in both of my criminal in both of my criminal divisions, whether it's the mental health court or my court of general jurisdiction, is we're problem solvers. We're problem solvers, creatively, strategically, um, collaboratively, and we're also educators. So if if I have to be able, so it's it's fundamental to me for individuals that have experienced significant trauma to help them understand what has happened to them in terms that they recognize there's hope, that they can recover, that I could help, the court could help them do that, and that the court wants to help them do that. And if they feel that that's something that they are willing, you know, to try on, so to speak, and, 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 and listen to what the research and data Antonio, you know, tells us uh, about trauma, about the impact of adverse childhood experiences and the impact of poverty, the impact of social determinants of health, which includes discrimination, racism, you know, um, just growing up without quality access to healthcare, nutrition, and, and communities that have strong pillars of culture, right? Um, and that are environmentally safe. So it crosses over all of these social determinants of health, which, which is public health. But the idea of, I think the idea of creating a space in court process where we could teach and we could form these, I guess, these bonds, you know, these invisible bonds, relate, relational bonds with the people that we serve to trust us. That is really the mechanics, if you will, of therapeutic jurisprudence. Can we tip the scales toward humanism? Can we tip the scales of justice toward dignity? Um, then we have a, a chance, then we have a chance to level the playing field um, with the people that we serve. And maybe they'll be more open to saying, yeah, I get it. For the first time, oh my God, I, I was the victim of domestic violence. I was the I was a victim, you know, of sexual assault. I did grow up in a in a in a home where there was addiction and poverty and violence or abuse. All of these factors, as you say, Neil, drive behaviors that contribute to uh, entering, to becoming justice involved. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, we could talk about this for ever. Uh, unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time. Uh, we'll, we'll invite you back again, shall we? Um, <laughs> so, um, thank you very much. It's it's, it's always a pleasure. Um, need to thank uh, uh, our friends, Barclays Access, Microlink PC, and uh, MyClearText for keeping us on air and captioned. We really look forward to you joining us on Twitter. We know it's going to be a great conversation. Thank you very much. Judge. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, uh, Access Chat, for everything you do promoting social justice every day. Oh, thank you. We love you. We love. I love you all too. Take care and be well. Great.